You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Well, good morning, In Focus Church. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. I'm not alone. Uh, My name is Keevan Carley. If we have not met, I am the youth director here, which means that typically on a Wednesday night, I am teaching the middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I have a blast with that. But this morning, I am honored and grateful for this opportunity to be teaching God's Word in our larger congregation. Uh, It's a special time as we are in this sermon series titled Miracles with our Every Nation family around the globe, really. And and we've been talking about this time and time again and and trying to drive home the importance and the purpose of miracles, emphasizing that it's not not so much for the purpose of our enjoyment or, or our benefit. It is for the glory of God that we may know him and make him known. And so with that that mind frame, I I want us to approach this time together this morning. Uh, Again, not just us, but around the world and those of you watching online that we're approaching God's word with this this heart posture. It says, God, I want to know you. As we study this miracle this morning, I want to know you. We're we're coming in even with, with expectation. God, help us know you, to see you more clearly for who you are. And with that, I, I, as I was preparing this week, I, I thought of this, this scene from this movie that, that brought forth some expectation, and it made me giggle a little bit, honestly, but I wanted to share. I, I wanted to share because I think it will set the tone for how we're trying to come in, what we're trying to be mindful of, and even some ways that we can come in differently from what this scene will show. So if you'll turn your attention to the screen. Anybody not seen The Incredibles? Okay, praise God. Praise God. Uh, so if anyone hasn't, and I didn't see your hand, or maybe you were afraid to raise your hand, that movie's, gosh, almost two decades old, I think, somewhere around there. And, and basically what had happened before, if you noticed that the big brolic man, his, his uh, what is that, roof of the car had a, a handprint dent in it, where basically he has super strength, he is a retired superhero, and he had a horrible day just a, a couple days prior to the scene. And he came home from having a horrible day at work, opens up his car door. There's a skateboard in the driveway. He slips on it and brace himself. He grabs his car. But because he has super strength, he, his hand crumbles the roof of his car. And that frustrates him even more. So then he slams his car door sh- shut. But then because he has super strength, it shatters the window, and that frustrates him even more. So then he picks up his car, lifts it over his head as though he's about to throw it, and he sees Tricycle Kid. <laughs> and the Tricycle Kid is like blowing a, a bubble, and then it just pops, and he's just amazed, and, and Bob is like, oh, oh, gosh, let me just set this down. I'm supposed to be uh, hiding my super strength. And so he just sets it down and goes inside. And then sometime later, we get to the scene that you just saw that the kid is parked in the man's driveway waiting to see something amazing. He's waiting with expectation. And we'll come back a little bit later to explain how this ties in with us even more beyond coming in expecting God to move this morning. But as we're 
talking about miracles, specifically in the book of John, Pastor Brent and and Carla, they have both explained to us that, that John wrote his book, his gospel, with intentionality to show that this life and this ministry of Jesus all points to the reality that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And so we approach each miracle that we have studied so far, including this one today, with that in mind, that John is writing to try to show his readers, his audience, and us today that Jesus is the Messiah. But uniquely for us this morning, we have to note that this miracle in particular is the only miracle that is included in all four Gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all included this miracle in their narrative accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, which means that there's some special uniqueness to it. There's something that each individual saw, and as the Holy Spirit was writing through them, said, hey, we need to highlight this. So hopefully that perks our ears up a little more. John also, he would write in a a special way that would connect the Old Testament to the New, where he's not knowledgeable of the New Testament. He's living it out, really, but as he's writing, he's saying there's some, some notes of history that are worth going back to look at because we can actually see Jesus being foreshadowed or, 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 or the, the reality of the need for a Savior being pointed to even back in the Old Testament. And so if, real quick plug, you are someone in here who is surprised by that or someone who maybe does not give too much importance to the Old Testament, that I would encourage you to sign up for one of our classes uh, underneath the umbrella of In Focus Equip that we have on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8.30 as uh, Brother Emerson is teaching that class. And it's on the Old Testament. It's a survey of the Old Testament to understand its importance how God is revealing himself and pointing to Jesus through the Old Testament. Go ahead and sign up now. I'll wait. Kidding. But as we're coming in, we're going to approach the text this week kind of like how Carla did last week. We're going to read it overall and we'll walk through it. But real quick, I want to connect the dots. Carla talked on John chapter 5, and here we are today in John chapter 6. And so There's some time that passed that we don't quite know exactly how much time, but in John chapter 5, Carla taught about Jesus' healing the lame man, right? And and how it showed Jesus' power as well as Jesus' compassion and Jesus' sovereignty over physical and spiritual illness. And then the chapter closes in the... the, uh, 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 the extending verses, the, it closes with Jesus teaching his audience and explaining a few things that we have to be mindful of before we start chapter 6. Where one of these things that Jesus emphasized with that was that he was claiming to be the Son of God. Where if you remember, Carla was mentioning that, that the Jews and the Pharisees, that they were approaching the man who was healed and also approaching Jesus with anger because all of the healing, that miracle, it took place on the Sabbath. And so they were coming to Jesus saying, hey, you're not supposed to do that. But Jesus, he responded and taught. He said, the Father is working now, and so am I. Where in that brief statement, it might seem like, okay, Jesus is saying, all right, he does it, so I'm going to follow his example. But there's, there's more to it. Where Jesus basically, he elaborates a little more, and, and I would encourage you to read chapter 5, but he elaborates more and explains that 
the Father's nature, the Father's essence, the Father's character is shared by Jesus. And the Jews would have been listening and understanding that Jesus isn't just claiming to be the Son of God in the sense of saying, okay, that's my daddy in our human earthly relationships that we know, but that even, even in regards to the spiritual sonship that we have as sons and daughters now, through Jesus, that's not quite what he meant. But that by claiming to share the essence of God, Jesus is claiming to be God. That Jesus is not just saying he does what God does, but that he shares the nature of who God is. Jesus was claiming to be God. That is of pivotal importance for us. But the second point that Jesus was making was he was saying, listen, you guys, you celebrate Israelite history. You remember correctly, at least to some degree, what happened in the past but you do it with such a, a heralding of Moses as your hero that you fail to see that Moses was actually pointing to me. Yeah. Jesus, he in, or John ch ends chapter 5 explaining how Jesus had all of these conversations with people and then leads into chapter 6. And that's where we'll begin in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And if you see me get there quickly... Don't think it's because I've got this Bible memorized, because I do not, but I have a bookmark. And I would encourage you to place one there this week as you prepare for connect groups. So I'm reading out of the CSB. In verse 1 it says, after this, again, sometime later, we don't know exactly how much. But after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000, not to count women and children, which would be included. Then Jesus, or which would increase the number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Dear Lord, we ask that as we study your word right now, God, that you will move, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to see you, that we will know you and make you known, God, as we look at this miracle. God, that the knowledge that you give us will not puff us up, but God, that we will humbly love you and others in a greater and more faithful degree. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we'll walk through this passage 
and kind of look at and make observations. That's, that's a, a Bible study tip that Carla demonstrated for us last week. And I, I want to revisit it to re-ingrain it in our hearts and minds. That we can study the Bible this way. Make observations. Ask questions. What stands out to you as you read this text? And so starting in verse 2, I would say the one thing that stands out to me is that it, it listed the reason that the crowds were gathered. They gathered because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. They saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. That could mean a few different things, but I'll tell you what I think it most likely means. It could mean that they wanted to be healed as well, that they had their ailments and their illnesses, their disease, that they were coming saying, oh man, I just hope that Jesus will heal me. Or maybe they were wanting to see something amazing. Maybe they were looking to be entertained, like Tricycle Kid, where they had seen something cool before. Man, Jesus healed that lame man who was lame for 38 years. We could see him do something even greater. Maybe they came in with this type of expectation that I think would be true because it, it, the way that the story pans out is that we see that they were really looking to Jesus only as someone who provided something spectacular, something that was significant, something that perhaps they had not seen before, and that brought their interest, but their willingness to receive him for the sake of entertainment, not for the spiritual truth that he offered. Then in verses 3 through 5, we see the way that Jesus, or the plan that Jesus had, which John doesn't actually go into much detail, but the, the other narratives, again, since this miracle was recounted in, in the other Gospels, that they give a little more detail to say Jesus basically had a plan going up this mountain, that he was going with his disciples to spend some quality time with them. And then as he looked up, the verse says, he saw the crowd coming towards him. What we see here is that Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted. Jesus, with a plan in mind, with people that he was being intentional to pursue and spend time with, being his disciples, he said, no, I'll allow myself to be interrupted so that I can serve my disciples, but also so that I can serve this crowd. Do you see your Savior's response in this moment? That as the crowd approached, Jesus started to have a conversation with Philip to, to get the, the plan and the order together. Hey, this is what we're going to do, Philip. How can we make this happen? It wasn't just a, a consideration of, man, these people, they might be hungry. Hmm. It was a plan being set in motion. We're going to do something about it. Now, I don't need to ask for a show of hands to see who in here fails to look like Jesus and live a life that is full and ready for interruption. Because we all know that when we're driving and, and one single car cuts us off and gets in our lane, those choice words that we utter under our breath. We know what we're like when we're in the grocery store or when we're at the gym and we see people that make eye contact, but you're like, mm, nope, keeping it moving. Because we won't want to be interrupted. We have our plans that we have set, and we're saying, no, I have to stay focused on what I'm doing. But Jesus, Jesus showed us something different. He slowed down and he took time. 
But we cannot overlook verse 4. Verse 4, when I was reading it, it, it stood out to me like it, it almost felt like a, an interruption, but it felt misplaced a little bit. Verse 4, if we pull it back up, it, it simply says, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So we get that the setting was being made that, okay, who, what, when, where, why? Who? We got Jesus, the disciples, and eventually the crowd approaching. The what? Jesus had some plan to go up on the mountain with his disciples. The when? We, we had it in the beginning that it was after this, after the events of chapter 5, with no exact details, but sometime later. And then we get the where, that it was at the Sea of Tiberias, which would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So we, we got this, this context, but then John, he, he doubles back to add an extra detail of when. That it was after the events of chapter 5, but it was before the Passover. Where this circling in, this narrowing of, of this detail is, is pretty specific. Where the author John, he's trying to draw some attention here by separating it from the reason why the crowd was gathering. Remember, in verse 2 it said that they gathered because of what Jesus had done, the healings. But then John notes the Passover is coming. Where I believe that John was trying to draw attention here to make note of, hey, you Jews, you audience, those reading this, you know what the Passover is. And this doesn't connect why the audience is here, but it does connect what Jesus is about to do. Where for us, if we don't know what the Passover is, it goes back again to the Old Testament where it was the, the first account of this was how or was when uh, the, it was a feast that was celebrated annually, but the first account was when the Jews were enslaved to Egypt, and as the last and final plague that would take place that ultimately would free them, God told Moses to tell the Israelites, hey, take a lamb and sacrifice it and use its blood to cover your doorposts, where as the Holy Spirit moves, the Lord will pass over these houses that have the lamb's blood those that are covered by the lamb. And as God passed over, we know how the story ended, that Egypt experienced the plague and Pharaoh let Israel free. And so God told Israel, hey, I want you to remember this moment. Not just for the fact of, or for the purpose of historical, historical facts or a good trivia night, but I want you to remember that it was the Lord that delivered you. That it was the Lord who protected you. And as Israel would follow this instruction and celebrate this moment year after year after year, they would remember this one event of the Passover as they celebrated the Passover, but they would also remember the events that followed. That God didn't deliver Israel from Egypt just so that they could have a good time and party on their own, but that God was leading them to something greater. That God was leading them to the promised land. And yes, that came with challenges, but with those challenges, they experienced God's goodness. So remembering the first account of Passover would lead them to remember further accounts of God's faithfulness, of God's character, of God's goodness. And so God, one of these accounts would have been the way that when they were hungry and had nothing to eat, that God provided manna from heaven, bread fell from the sky, and it was the perfect amount for the Israelite camps to eat. So what does this mean? It means that this holiday that the Jews were getting ready to celebrate, again, John is making note of this because he's wanting to show that what Jesus was about to do was actually tied to the Passover, 
And it's actually something even greater. It's actually something even greater. And so I found the actual passage from Exodus that shows exactly what took place here. And I wanted to read it. It's not up on the screen for you. But again, as you're studying for Connect Group this week, you can take a look at Exodus chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. It quickly says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses asks. And he continues, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Again, who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So it's with this setting that these Jews are gathered around Jesus because they want to see something amazing from him and his hands. But Jesus has mindfulness of what they're about to celebrate and has something to pour out from his heart that will be an even greater blessing. So if we look at verse 5, Continuing to walk through, we see that Jesus' compassion moved him to act before the people were even in his presence. Remember the verse, it showed that Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. And that led him to ask Philip the question, where do we get bread to feed these people? Jesus had compassion that led him to act before a request was even made to him. Before the people could come and say, hey, um, you got something for me? Hey, I need some help. Hey, I, I need some food. Jesus, out of his compassion, out of his, his, his sovereignty, out of his power, he looked and saw people in need and responded to that need even without their request. As God in the flesh, the, the image of the invisible God, he shows the Father's love by going after and serving a people who needed him, even if they did not present the request to him. But in verses 5 through 7, I want us to see this. It says, so when Jesus looked up and noticed the huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. So we see Jesus was testing his disciple, that he, he still had his original plan of going to the, to the mountain, that he was still apparently continuing to, to proceed forth with it by saying, hey, I've got something for you to see, Philip. But he started with the question to see, Philip, what, what is your answer to this problem? We need to feed these people. How are we going to do it? But look at how Philip responded. Philip's eyes were so fixed on the problem that like the lame man last week, he didn't answer Jesus' initial question. He provided some type of excuse that said, hey, hey, we can't do this. It's impossible. That Philip's eyes were fixed on the crowd and with great math and even great logistical and administrative skills, you know how, how quickly you've got to calculate to be able to say, mm, there's about 5,000 men, uh, okay, a little bit of bread, it costs this much, and man, if we got to go buy that, okay. 200, Jesus, 200 denarii worth would not be enough to give them a little bit. 
in the Bible, if you have a study Bible, it has a little note there at the bottom that one denarius was worth one day's work, one day's worth of wages. So 200 would be worth 200 days worth of wages, which is about seven to eight months of wages. Imagine if you took seven to eight months worth of your income and gave it away. It would hurt you, right? You would be stuck a little bit like, Jesus, I don't know if you really want me to do this because I, I, I'm going to take the hit. But the point is this, that Philip was aware of this need and this problem and how big and how vast it was, but it stole Philip's focus. Philip was more concerned about the problem than he was the solution that was standing in front of him. I can almost imagine that Philip is in this conversation with Jesus, and he's, he's not even looking at Jesus. He's, he's giving a mere glimpse at Jesus, saying, Jesus, what do you mean? You see how big this crowd is? This is going to take 200, this is going to take seven to eight months worth of income for us to give them a little bit. He's so focused over here that his attention is not where it should be. He's so focused on the problem that he's failing to remember the times that Jesus has already shown himself to be the solution. All the times that he has seen miracles, just like in the previous chapter, where Jesus by word commanded a lame man who was paralyzed for 38 years to take up his mat and walk, and it came to be. Philip missed this because he was looking at the crowd. He was looking at the problem. Philip failed to remember that Jesus had just turned water into wine, practically making something out of nothing because Philip was focused on his problem. He glimpsed at Jesus but gazed at the problem. And I want us to pause in reflection right now to consider all the ways that we can be Philip. We can be the crowd as well, approaching Jesus like a genie who we're saying, God, I just, I just want to see you do something. Do something for me. I want it right now. I need it. Not and usually confusing our wants and our needs, but we approach God in that way where we just want to see something amazing happen. But we can be like Philip, where we're in need of a miracle, but instead of looking to our solution, we're looking at the problem and magnifying it. We're focusing on what we need and, and how we cannot get it or do anything about it. So I want you to consider what is that for you? What scenario are you facing in life that is causing you to gaze at that problem and magnify its challenges and warily search Jesus as your solution? What mountains stand before you that seem so big that you glimpse at Jesus overlooking the reality that he is the solution because you're too busy searching for the tools and the resources that you need to be able to scale that mountain. I need more of this. I need more time. I need more money. I just need people that, that will cheer me on. What, whatever it is that is internally trying to fill the void in your heart, trying to encourage you enough to move forward, what is it? Carla told us last week that we have to be careful not just careful, we need to be aware of the pools of Bethesda that we run to for comfort and for peace, for rest, healing, and hope, and wholeness. Where when we have problems that seem incalculable, the numbers don't add up, the mountain too big to move, the pain too much to bear, we are like Philip if our eyes are fixed on it 
instead of Jesus. The Africa Bible Commentary listed a, a short and sweet statement as an a, a offering of the proper response that Philip should have had. He simply says, there are a lot of people, but nothing is difficult for you, Lord. That should be our response, regardless of the situation. God, this is too difficult for me. God, I'm so overwhelmed and stressed. God, I'm in so much pain. But nothing is too difficult for you, Lord. Nothing too, too painful for you to heal. No debt too large for you to provide. No suffering too great for you to comfort. This should be our response. See, the faith that we're called to bring does not disregard the magnitude of our problem as though it doesn't exist. That's not faith. Faith acknowledges the reality, the diagnosis on the paper, the x-ray that we see with our eyes, the collectors calling our phones, the math not adding up, the pain that we feel. Faith acknowledges it, but we glimpse at it and gaze at Jesus. We look to him and say, God, you see this. You see me. You know what I'm enduring. You know the suffering that surrounds and swells me. Lord Jesus, you see it. But God, nothing is too difficult for you. But our heart posture has to be set in the right way that has the right mindfulness of the purpose of the miracle. That we understand, God, this is for your glory. God, so that I can know you more and make you known to others. But when we come in with that right and correct heart posture, when we remember rightly, we can respond rightly, where we then come with the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as the faith of Jesus that says, God, I know you can, but even if you don't, I will trust you. That I will not worship this idol of this mountain. I will not worship this idol of my problem and give it more of my attention, more of my faith that it is immovable than you because you are the one that is all-powerful, God. We can come in with that heart set and that mindset and trust Jesus to perform the miracle that we know he's able to, but that if he doesn't, we still have faith that he can do a miracle in us that we can surrender ourselves and say, God, I ask that you take this cup from me like Jesus, you prayed in the garden. God, I ask that you move this mountain, that you get me out of this situation, that you change my circumstances. I ask and I petition, I request that of you, God. But Lord, even if you choose not to, you're still powerful, compassionate, and sovereign, which means that you can use this mountain to move me, to change me, to transform me, to look more like you, Jesus, that you are the best steward of my life, not myself. So God, I'm trusting you that even if you deny my request, God, you have my need in mind. You're going to move me. Let the miracle be in me as much as it is in my circumstances. This is the faith that God desires us to bring. In verse 9, we see that another disciple, Andrew, he brings in and offers a solution. He sees a little boy with some bread, some barley loaves, and some fish. 
And he offers it saying, all right, Jesus, I, I see something here that you might be able to work with, but I, I don't know if it's going to do too much for a crowd this large. Well, he at least has a little faith that he offers. I picture him going back and forth. Well, well Jesus, I, I, I think you might be able to work a little bit with, with, with this right here, but, but remember, do you see this? The back and forth, oh, sorry, my aligners are coming out. The back and forth that we have in our faith, the tension that Pastor Brent taught us about, where we're going, and Jesus still is even accepting of this. Where Jesus works with it. And John actually is not emphasizing this boy and his generosity, although there's something that certainly should be said of what Jesus can do with our little with the little that we offer him, the little faith, the little acting on our faith where we're giving to him saying, here is my action in obedience, surrender to you. That Jesus does great things with that, but even still the emphasis is on God and his power. So we see as the story is coming to an end in verse 11 that Jesus, he made a miracle with the little because a little bit is more than enough for the Lord. That Jesus first blessed the Lord for the little bit that he had and then blessed man from the little bit. But it kept going on and on and on in abundance to where the audience, the, the John wrote, the audience had more than enough. Everyone ate to their fill, but then they had enough to fill 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus showing that he is more than enough just as we sang a few moments ago. And later in the chapter, again, we are only focusing on these 14 verses, but John writes and, and records some dialogues that Jesus had as he was interacting with his audience and, and clarifies what all of this means, that Jesus was pointing to himself as the greater distributor, more so than Moses, but even as the initiator, that Jesus is showing that his provision of food is linked to spiritual feeding. That is to say that whether it is the provision of his hands or the provision of himself, Jesus satisfies the longings of this life and the next. Whether Jesus is providing from his hand or providing himself on the cross, he is enough. Jesus doesn't just have the abundance that we need. He is our portion. He is what we need when we need it. As we sang a little bit ago, Jehovah Jireh, you are enough. Whether that comes through you providing and giving me something or giving me more of you, you're enough, Jesus. See, this miracle shows us that Jesus, as God in the flesh, provides earthly bread to abundantly serve over 5,000 people in a way that symbolically shows an even greater provision that the Jews need, that you and I need. And the symbolism shows or foreshadows that Jesus would give of his body one day by, as he lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve hanging himself on the tree, giving of himself, giving his life, and laying it down so that those who feed on him, those who trust him to be their spiritual bread, are first saved and brought into right relationship with him that satisfies the greatest debt and the greatest need of their souls. But thereafter, Jesus promises them abundant life 
Life and life more abundantly where we experience him and his goodness as he shows and shares the nature and the essence of God. Jesus was connecting the dots between the Passover and this current miracle, showing that by his hand, yes, he provides. And this is even greater than Moses. But that through the provision of himself, that if they would receive him, that they would have enough to satisfy their souls and their need for a savior, but that they would have more than enough to endure the challenges that they will experience in this life. Do you see how compassionate our Savior is? That he would see this need, the need of this crowd before they could even approach him, let alone for physical bread, but for the spiritual matter. That Jesus coming to the earth, sent by the Father, living this perfect life, giving of himself on the cross, saw their need and met it out of his goodness, out of his compassion, out of his power, and out of his sovereignty. We see that Jesus cares for our needs as well. With each miracle, we know God and we make him known. That the miracle at the wedding in Cana, Jesus showed that he cares for earthly needs. With the miracle of the healing of the lame man, we see that Jesus cares for earthly needs and wants and has the intention of making us holy so that we could have right relationship with the Father that that lame man then went and worshiped in the temple. And in the same way, Jesus performs miracles today for us to know him and make him known that we may worship him as we experience him in all of his goodness, in all of his kindness, and his great love for us. See, I want to offer a, a, a different perspective of the tricycle kid from the clip we started with. He came with expectation, wanting to see something amazing out of entertainment, out of intrigue, curiosity, and interest. But we can come with expectation that says, God, I'm expecting you to show up now. I'm expecting a miracle today. I came in with weariness. I came in with dread. I came in in suffering. I came in in pain. And Jesus, I'm expecting something. I've seen you move. I've seen you move the mountains, and I believe that you can do it again. I'm coming in with expectation, Jesus. I want to see you do something amazing, but not just for the sake of entertaining me, but for the sake of me knowing you and making you known for the sake of me being able to testify to your goodness and declare that the only reason why I'm standing today, the only reason why I got through, the only reason why that diagnosis did not take me out, the only reason why my bank account didn't have the last say, the only reason why I'm now able to steward differently is because of your work, Jesus, that we could testify and sing praises to his name. So that points to two categories of people in here that I think we both have a response to make. First and foremost, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, if you hear him and you hear these stories and these accounts of him working miracles, and you maybe have the intrigue and the curiosity, like the crowd, to say, yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about that. I hope you want to hear even more after today. But you still have a response to make a response of faith 
and surrender where you cry out to God, and you can do so even now, Lord, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe the greatest miracle that you work is in my own soul. Save me from my sin. And as you cry out to him with earnesty in your heart, trusting him, then you are saved. When you surrender in your heart and turn away from your sin, you're saved. You're brought into right relationship. The holiness that Jesus had the intention for you, you receive it. It's given to you out of God's grace and mercy. But I believe that the second category of us all has some type of need that we have come in with this morning. Some known to others, some unknown to ourselves. Some that we've shared with God, taking him on his his word when the Bible says that we can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. And some that we are afraid to even say by name. But God is inviting us in this moment. So I want to pray for you right now. But I'm asking you, wherever you are, online, here, sitting in a seat in this room, that you will pray earnestly before the Father yourself. First, that we will ask for the faith that God desires of us. Lord, we want to respond rightly, which requires that we remember correctly. Remember correctly that you're a good father, that you loved us before the foundation of the earth, that your plan, that your mission to save us existed before you created us, God, that you are good And that in your goodness, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. That you saved us and as you pursued us, God. That we didn't knock on your door saying, hey, we need a savior. But Jesus, you pursued us. That the gospel was preached to us and we responded, God. And we thank you for that. And as you provide that miracle, God, we bring in our need for another. Whatever it is for healing, God, we need a miracle for provision in our church. God, we need a miracle for direction. God, we need a miracle in so many ways, in so many relationships. And we lay it at your feet with the belief, God, that you can do it, that you are powerful. Lord, that you are compassionate and you see us. And Lord, that you are sovereign. But Lord, we also surrender our whole self, our whole lives, God, trusting that because of your goodness and your sovereignty, you may say no to our request. Like a good father that denies his son or daughter something they want in order to give them what they need, God, you may deny our request, but Lord, give us the faith to trust you anyway, to trust that you will steward these moments in our lives, these seasons, these circumstances, and trust you, Lord, to do a work in us, to do a miracle, God, that will still let us experience and know you, that we can make you known to others, that we can testify to the joy and the peace that we have as we suffer, as we're in pain, and as we're in need. And Lord, may you be glorified in all of this. In your son's name, amen. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. 
Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from, and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.